Good morning, Grace Chapel. Uh, children, you are dismissed. You can head out to your uh, teaching classrooms. Enjoy yourself. We are glad you were here worshiping with us. How's everybody doing? Good. That's good to hear. It's nice to get a response. <laughs> Just look back at me. Uh, but we're glad you're here. And uh, we've had quite a, quite a week at Grace uh, Chapel. We've had uh, Brenda Ressler's father pass away and Jen Wenzel's mom pass away. And we know where they are. That's, that's the exciting time. But please be in prayer for these families in, in the losses uh, this week and in the preparations for memorial services that are coming up. Um, Let's pray. Let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, acknowledging our complete and utter dependence on you for peace, for hope, for the salvation that so many of us in this room gathered today have because of you and uh, your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have indwelling in us your Spirit that teaches us that guides us, that reveals uh, things about us that need to change, and you transform through your power. And we pray for these families and their losses this week. We pray for those who are ill and sick. We have, we have many, Lord, in this, uh, in this world today who need to know that you are God and that you are in control. And for the families of our church, we pray for comfort, in peace. And Lord, uh, whatever we need to do uh, physically to help, to nurture, and to take care. And we thank you that you are in control and you will show us. And we wait. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going through the book of Judges. Did you, you remember? Uh, we had last week off. We were out at the farm having uh, what I consider to be awesome services. I, I just enjoyed those. And I'm really, really bummed about the weather, changing all that, because I'd, I'd like to do it again. So we're going to plan another one. <laughs> uh, probably like in May, all right? So like, <laughs> mark it on your calendars. Dick, unless you can do something and winterize somehow... Can, Oh, try, okay, if you can, yeah. So where are we at in the book of Judges? Well, we're, we're at chapters 6 through 8, and I trust that you've read this for yourself before you come to service and talk about it in your small groups, because it's going to mean so much more to you if you do that, because they're narratives. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, or I mean, I, I, I know you're all really intelligent and can read for yourself. Uh, but today we're looking at a guy named Gideon. How many have heard that story? You've heard the story of Gideon, you know, and, and if you're new to church, it's going to be a new story to you, and it's pretty amazing. But he's the fourth major judge. We've looked at three already. And there are actually, if you go through uh, judges, there are six major judges, so we're like halfway through. And he's the leading judge on this next wave of three judges. You're going to have Gideon, then a guy named Jephthah, which you made, uh, who was that? I can't remember him. And then Samson. You heard of Samson? Yeah, it's like, I think they do movies about Samson. And the accounts that we're going to do now of these last three judges are way longer than the first three. Uh, we had Othniel, Ehud, and then the last time we met, we did Deborah and her friend Barak. And as Israel declines into adultery, 
and idolatry, and it increases and it increases. What we find is that they are worshiping the creation over the creator. It's mankind's problem. It still is today. And the accounts of how God's going to save them out of these messes that they're creating get longer, longer. So the big picture for chapter 6 through 8 that we're doing right now, it's the same cycle. It's the cycle we see repeated through judges. It's the cycle we see repeated through our own lives. And the Lord raises up this guy named Gideon to deliver Israel, and God saves Israel through obvious human weakness. Isn't that hopeful for you and I? That God chooses to use the weak to deliver. Because then you know what? It was God. It was him. In order that Israel might know that he is Lord and he is alone is Lord and he saves and he rules his people even when it doesn't look like that's what's going on. There can only be one. And God delivers and Gideon responds to Israel's attempt at the end of the story. I'm just kind of giving you a recap for those of you who didn't read it. I know there's nobody here who did that, but just in case. Gideon responds to Israel's attempt at the end of his heroics. They want to make him king, right? Not just a judge. They want to make him king. And he summarizes the message of the entire story. That's, so we're going to kind of start at the end and work our way back. It's in Judges chapter 8 and verse 23. And here's how Gideon responds to them wanting to make him king. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Capstone. Awesome statement. That's where, how it ends. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. You ready? All right. Big surprise in the very first verse of chapter 6. I know nobody's expecting this. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Have we heard this before? Like how many times? And the Lord gave them this time into the hand of a nation called Midian for seven years. So this time... When you read on in the first part of chapter 6, Israel responds to this oppression, this seven years of being under the thumb of these Midianites, these raiders who come in and they just take everything and then they leave. It's, a, it's, it's a horrible. I mean, you do all the work and the harvest. You imagine if you're a farmer and you're agrarian and you've got all this stuff and it's harvest time and they come in and take it all and leave you with nothing. So they respond to this Midian oppression in two ways. One, they hide. <laughs> Pretty typical human response, verse, verse 2. They hide in mountain caves, and they dig holes in the ground to hide in. But this approach, as you read, only makes matters worse, and the oppression gets even harder. The Midianites hunt them down. Second response is a little bit better. In verse 6, the people of Israel, after seven years, finally cry out to the Lord for help. And this pattern, I think, plays out in our lives today. I think it's very, very similar in our Christian life. When we give in to a temptation and we sin, whatever, whatever that is, we often, our response is to hide from the one who has saved us from that sin. And that makes things worse not better. Case in point, how many people do you think there are who avoid church with all kinds of really weak excuses and reasons 
because they really don't want to hear the truth about their sin and their lifestyle and the choices they have made, and they know that at this particular church they're going to hear the truth. Do you think that ever happens? And so they avoid hearing the truth. And, and what they might do is they might go to church, but they'll pick a church where they really don't talk about the Bible all that much, and it's just a great story and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of feel-good stuff, and they're weak on the truth. That is running from God. That is hiding from the only source of your salvation from that sin. And this time, when Israel cries out to the Lord for help, he does something different. This time, he sends a prophet. We haven't seen this yet. Um, He sends a prophet to speak before he sends a judge to save. It's in verses 7 through 10. And here's what the prophet delivers. He delivers a word from God himself which explains explicitly why Israel is experiencing what they are experiencing, this, this oppression at the hand of the Midianites, who, by the way, case in point, they're related to Israel, the Midian is, through um, their cousins, through Abraham and one of the concubines he had. So there's a relationship here. And we find here in Judges 6 that the, the Midianite cousins are being used by God as a tool of discipline for God's children. And then, after the prophet lays it all out, says, okay, here's what's going on, here's what's happening, all of a sudden, we, in the next section, we see there's this angel of the Lord, who we saw earlier, back in chapter 2. The angel of the Lord appears to a man named Gideon, who we find he's secretly hiding, threshing the wheat from, from the harvest, and he's not doing it on the threshing floor of, of where you do wheat. He's hiding in a wine press doing it, because the Midianites would, would be looking at that harvest time to see where everybody's getting their wheat, and then they can come along and say, thank you very much, and take it. Verses 12 through 13, chapter 6. This is what the angel of the Lord says. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. What's he doing? (laughs) He's hiding in a wine press. (laughs) So, see, God does have quite a sense of humor, or kind of, we'll get hit anyway. Note Gideon's response. Here's the deal, verse 13. Please, my Lord, and he uses the word for master, not, not, it's not Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Remember, remember Moses and that whole thing? And now the Lord has forsaken us, and he's given us into the hand of Midian. That's his perspective on what's going on in his world. I want to focus this morning a little bit on his response. Why then has all this happened to us? Have you ever ask that question? You, you have, right? Like, you're human, right? You're all, you're, you're right. Something happened, you say, God, why would you let this happen? How can you let that happen? Why, why is this happening to us? And remember something here. That question that Gideon's asking was emphatically answered by the speech of the prophet to the nation of Israel back in verses 8 through 10. I mean, Gideon, what, you, you don't watch the news? I mean, like, what did you miss here? 
For anybody reading this passage over the last 3,000 years, what is so obvious, I hope it is to all of us today, is that Gideon is asking a question that God has already answered. But that is the whole point of this passage. This is what you and I are supposed to see this morning. Very often, we, we ask God the same type of questions, and the answers to our questions are most likely to be found by reading His already declared will. It's called the Bible. There are more Bibles in the world today. I, I, I forget how many millions and millions of Bibles they estimate there are across the planet. Is anybody reading it? These words of God to get the answers to life? Maybe we just don't like the answers. Maybe God's answers don't suit our preferences. Yeah, 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 that's good, but I still got the answer. I still got a question. Maybe like Job, when he was in excruciating pain, and he cried out to God, and he, he, he cried, why? And God said, Job, you're my creation, and you have an extremely capped perspective on what is really going on. And by the way, I do what I do, and I don't consult you first. Could we at times suffer from the same disease of poor spiritual insight, eyesight that Gideon has here? Anybody? Could we, could we suffer? Yeah. Back then it was, but we're God's children. Why is this happening? We, we got a tabernacle to Yahweh himself over in Shiloh. We, we got priests, and we got Levites, and we got all sorts of religious trappings. And now today we say, why is this happening? We got a building. Look, at it's a beautiful building, isn't it? We got a building. And some of us attend every Sunday. <laughs> and we take communion. And we baptize believers. And we got religious books and guides galore. And half of them are free. You can get them online. And we've, we've got Christian celebrities. <sighs> yeah. And they tell us what the will of God is. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? In our story, Gideon, just like Moses, declares he's weak. Gideon, just like Moses, acknowledges that he's unworthy of what the angel of the Lord has just said. And God agrees. <laughs> You're right. But note the kind of might and the kind of strength that God identifies for Gideon. It's in verse 12. The Lord is with you. And then again in verse 16. But I will be with you. Do you remember when the Lord called Moses? Remember that whole burning bush experience? Those of you who read that story? And God says, I want you to go back into the teeth of danger. <laughs> you've, been, you've been doing the shepherd thing for 40 years now. I want you to go back to where you were a hundred men. I want you to go back. And miraculously, Moses, I want you to save Israel from Egyptian bondage. And Moses, what did he do? How did he respond? 
he asked the same question that, that, that Gideon's given here. And Moses, guess what? Received the same answer. It's in Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. And God said a couple times, I will be with you. This promise from the Lord, I will be with you, is so central to his overall plan of redemption for you and for me. This promise, I will be with you, is actually found in his covenantal name. The name God chose to be known by his children of Israel that he shared with Moses at that burning bush. Right after God promised that he would be with Moses, he revealed to Moses that covenantal name in Exodus 3.14. And he said, I am, or it can be translated, I will be. And in light of what God promised Moses then and what God is promising Gideon right here in our passage, what is one of the things God will be? I will be with you. I am with you. There is no one who can be with you like I am with you. Oh, you will look for others. You will look for people and things in this life to be with you and be the substitute to be with you like this, but there isn't anyone. And this is seen in another Hebrew name we're introduced to in the Old Testament, the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Isaiah 7.14, we're introduced to it where the prophet Isaiah gets, uh, tells the prophecy um, to the king. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. It's no accident that the name Emmanuel is applied to Jesus in Joseph's dream about Mary becoming pregnant in Matthew 1.23 where the angel says in the dream, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's with us. God's very name is the ultimate expression of his promise. It's so cool. I will be with you. God's divine presence is the, is the one reality that you and I have in this present universe that can fully satisfy us for everything, anything that comes. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is why I am is the very hope of our eternity. In, in Revelation 21.3, talking about what is yet to come, John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember heaven, the new heaven comes down to the new earth? He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Genesis, Revelation, everything in between. God with us. The power for each of us to do the will of God, whatever it is today, is forever fueled by the promise of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, what? I am with you always to the end of the age. So Gideon gets this from God, and then he, he, he goes on to ask for a private sign. Okay, I need to know. I need to know. 
I, I want to confirm your identity as this angel of the Lord, this messenger of God in, in, in 617. And some over the years, and I remember this is how I was raised, this is how I was taught in the church too, that this is Gideon's lack of faith. That's how it's presented. But I think we have to remember something that all of Israel at this time, as we read, and, and especially Gideon's own family, like his dad, is they're worshiping all kinds of gods, including Yahweh. It's a real mix. It's very similar to our present day. There is spiritual confusion today. There is hope in false heroes. There is a lack of certainty. And Gideon wants to know if this is really the Lord or is it some other entity, some other God. He wants to know if this is Yahweh that he's heard about from his forefathers. He, uh, he mentioned that earlier. Is this you? Before I go on, is this you? I need to know. So Gideon is told to bring a meal offering, and he prepares it. And then it, before he offers it, he's told to pour all the liquid broth from the goat that's left over over it to saturate it in moisture and then put it on a rock, thus making what happens next all the more, yes, I am God. In verse 21, then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand. He touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. Okay, <laughs> you are the Lord. Do you remember later, hundreds of years actually, later in Israel's history, there was something similar but on a grander scale, and it was Elijah the prophet competing with the prophets of Baal to see who is real God. By the way, the prophets of Baal, hundreds of years later, same God that Israel has allowed in to the land here, same God, Baal. They never got rid of him, the worship of him. And Elijah's confronting those prophets, and he's got his altar, they've got theirs, and they can't get their God to light theirs without them actually walking over, sneaking over and do it. They can't do it. And what, is, what does Elijah do? He has gallons of water poured over the altar, and then God sends fire down from the sky and consumes the whole thing, burns it all up. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So he was there, he did his thing, he's gone. Poof! And then Gideon perceived, oh no, this is why Gideon's going, he's going, that was the angel of the messenger of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face, which means I'm going to die. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. But the angel of the Lord has just disappeared, and Gideon is there alone. So who's talking to him, speaking to him right now? What I'm seeing here is God the Father, the first person of the triune Godhead, speaking here. And the angel or the messenger of God is the second person, was the second person, the, the pre-incarnate Christ. So Gideon builds an altar there to the Lord, 
and he calls it, the Lord is peace. Seeing the angel of the Lord and living through it changes Gideon's life. (laughs) And he remembers that moment. He worships in that moment. He names the place of that moment. In Genesis 32, 30, Jacob did the very same thing after he saw the angel of the Lord face to face. And you can imagine how an experience like that would have such a dramatic impact on Gideon's life, or ours, right? Wait a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Listen to this. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, he's the creator, he created the whole thing, shone in our hearts. Why? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, how so? In the face of Jesus Christ. Hmm. I have the knowledge of the glory of God. Wow. I possess the light of God. This revelation of God in my heart. Isn't that what it says? It's Jesus. The Word of God, the light of God, the very face of God. Now I understand that expression. I have seen the light. Have you? Is this true of you? So what's our response? Well, let's take a look at what Gideon's response was. First of all, he's called by God, told God, first thing you got to do is you got to eradicate the garbage in your life. You're going to go and you're going to tear down your dad's idols in the household that the whole village, the whole community worships. And he clearly obeys the command of the Lord. It's the first thing you got to do, clean house. And the text is also very clear that Gideon is afraid to obey such a command given the danger of the situation. Israel has so ingrained into their worship and their culture these false gods that to touch them that to speak against them, heaven forbid, remove them, means certain death. If you attempted to spiritually clean your house, maybe it's your life and you've read God's Word and you've gone, I've got to change that. I've got to clean that up. That's not right. So you've said in your life or maybe something in your family, or uh, in a relationship that you, you currently have, and you said, i got to clean that up, what would be the untouchable? What would be the non-touchable? You know what it is. God knows what it is. You may hide it from us, but you know. Where, where you're like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Pete. Yeah, I see it in God's Word. Let's get serious. I agree 100%, but not that. You can't touch this. <laughs> but be careful because God can touch that. And he will. So Gideon sneaks out at night to do it. So what I'm noting here is that fear and faith are not always at odds. Some Christians object to associating fear and faith. 
They avoid the association. They see the association as a flaw in character. Maybe. Yeah. I think, I think there are times. Absolutely, yes. But here, I'm seeing Gideon obey what God asked him to do with what I would call a cautious fear and a great faith. He knows the consequences of what he's doing. His dad has to save his skin the next morning when the village elders come out and say, bring him out because we want to kill him. And aren't there times in your life when you are truly afraid to obey the Word of God? Come on, be honest. You are because you know that obedience, that kind of obedience is going to have a, a difficult or even a negative consequence on something in your life, on people you know. But by God's grace, you did it anyway because your fear of the Lord conquered your fear of man. And it was expressed by your faith to do the fearful thing, to do the hard thing. Now, having first destroyed the idols, which God said, you got to do this first before we get on with the other, uh, he's first destroyed the idols, which are the reason for the oppression in the first place in the household of his dad. Gideon's now called to destroy the Midianites, who are the tool of oppression from the land of Israel. He's got to remove both. So he summons warriors from some of the tribes of Israel in verses 34 and 35, and then he asks for another sign of the Lord. So, so I know a lot of people are going, oh, man, what, why, why does he keep doing this? He asks for this other sign, and it's the well-known story that, even if you didn't go to church, you've heard about this putting out the sheep's fleece, fleece. You know, you want to determine something, so you ask God, and you say, hey, do this, and then I'll know that this is what I'm supposed to do. It's in verse 37, and, and Gideon asked the Lord, he says, if there is dew on, he's going, to, he's going to put the fleece out at night, and he's going to get up in the morning, and if there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry all around the ground, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Verse 39, then let not, and God did it, right? And then, verse 39, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one more time. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece next morning, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did it. Can you imagine you or me, putting God to the test like this, pushing God. Can you? Maybe you've done it. It's like, oh, really? Like, you'd be like on the first morning with Gideon, you go, oh, that's awesome. I have never seen anything like this before. Guys, look. It's like, oh, this is so cool. Okay, can you do it again? But this time with a twist. And many people have suggested here that Gideon's request twice shows weakness and a lack of faith. And again, I'm going to say, maybe. Not emphatically, yes. I'm saying maybe. Because I'm looking at Gideon in the situation he is in the society and culture that he lives, and I want to cut him some slack and consider the facts. 
Fact number one, first in verse 34, it says, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. He's possessed by the Spirit of God before he even makes those requests. Second, God willingly performs these signs without any rebuke to Gideon for asking. It would be a good time for God to say, everybody else reading this, no, this is not, Gideon, you're really pushing at your luck here. But that raises another question. So if Gideon already knows the will of God, it's been detailed for him, he already knows he has the presence of God as the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him and actually says clothed him. And God has promised emphatically to give him victory. Why does Gideon ask the Lord to perform these fleece signs? Well, maybe, maybe Moses can help us out a little bit. We went to him earlier. How about here? In Exodus chapter 4, we were in three before. Exodus chapter 4, in the first eight verses, Moses is standing before Yahweh. It's the burning bush episode still. He's just been commissioned to go liberate the nation of Israel from Egyptian bondage. But Moses doesn't think the people of Israel will believe him that he's talked to Yahweh and will listen to him. He doesn't seem to be too worried about Pharaoh. It's the people of Israel he's worried about. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Probably with that tone, too. And the Lord said to him, What's in your hand? And he said, It's a staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran, (laughs) like many of us would. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and grab it by the tail. (laughs) This takes a lot of faith. So he put out his hand, caught it, and it became a staff in his hand again. And God said that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Whoa. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they won't believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. We people, we do at times require confirmation, don't we? And hasn't God in your life done things where you just took a step back and maybe something to pass and you've just gone, that was completely God. It's so obvious. I mean, people who don't know God would have a coincidental story or something, but we know, no, that was God. I mean, that was clear. That was a two-by-four over the head. Got it. And especially we need it in fearful and unknown, untraveled times. And God can, and He sometimes does, build upon our faith through evidence. But these stories, especially the one we're reading here about Gideon, should not be our operating models for faith. In the New Testament, Thomas, remember disciple Thomas? And all the disciples said, we saw Jesus. 
He's resurrected from the dead. And Thomas said, no, you didn't. He doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So what does Jesus do? He appears to Thomas. And he shows Thomas his crucifixion scars. And he says, remember, remember the spear went in my side? Look at that. Look at this. Look at the, where the crown of thorns left. And Thomas what? Believes. And Jesus says something remarkable in verse 29 of John 20. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And those who will be blessed that Jesus is talking about here, wouldn't that include you and me? I think it does. We have the ultimate sign today that God is the I am. We have the ultimate sign that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have the ultimate sign that God has saved us and that we have the victory in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 21 to 25. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. I mean, there's all kinds of wisdom out here right now. People are telling us how things are. <laughs> Don't always believe it. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, which would be Jesus, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. They did with Moses, they did with Gideon, and they did in Paul's day as he writes this. And Greeks seek wisdom. But God didn't go that route. But we preach what? Christ crucified, a mystery. Why on earth? How could this be the only way? A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those of us in this room who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, back to the fleece. It's often thought and taught, I was raised this way, that this sign through the fleece was intended to help Gideon know the will of God for his life. So many modern-day Christians have been taught to ask for similar signs from God so that they too might know the will of God for their life. I got three job opportunities. I don't. I'm just, uh, I've got three job opportunities. Dear God, please cause the employer that you want me to work for to call me today. And then I will know that the first one of them to call is the sign from you to take the job. Just do that, God. I just, I don't know. Dear God, if the street name is a f familiar name to me, that's the house we're supposed to buy. Some of you are going, I did that. But here's the problem with using Gideon as your proof text for doing that. Gideon's fleece was not put out to determine the will of God for his life. Read the text. Gideon is completely clear concerning God's will for his life. You're going to go and eradicate the Midianites from the land, Gideon, and I'm going to use you. Like, there's no mystery here. 
God has laid out the details of what's going to happen already. Gideon's fleece test is being offered by him as a response to the clear communication of God's will, not in order to discover it. Gideon may be imitating Moses again with these signs to make known to Israel, this has to be God. There's no one else who can do this. It's the Lord who has appeared to me, and it is the Lord who's going to deliver through me. Signs encourage, have encouraged God's people to do His already declared will. Not to help us discover His will. The same is true for you and I as Christians today. Exact same thing. When it comes to the will of God for us, which so many books have been written and so many millions of dollars made off those books, there is no guesswork. There's no guesswork to knowing God's will for your life. It's just homework. Reading the Bible, meditating, praying through the Bible. It is God's will for us that we should be sanctified. Would anybody disagree with that? What's God's will for my life? That I be sanctified, set apart, different, holy. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It is God's will for us that we should always rejoice, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in every circumstance, whether it's good or bad. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18. It's God's will that we should love our enemies, forgive those who wrong us, and be generous with the resources that God's already provided us. Jesus told us that whoever does the will of God, which is clearly spelled out in Scripture, in this very way is my brother, sister, and mother. Mark 3. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.17 that whoever does the will of God abides forever. When we pray, don't we, like our Master Jesus, conclude with, thy will be done, not mine? It's easy to know the will of God, it's far more difficult to do it. So what sign from God do you and I have today that encourages us to do the will of God? What's he provided? Well, we have the sign of the cross. A cross is what I deserve. A cross is what every one of you deserves because of our sin. But upon trust in Jesus, we will not receive the sign of the cross. We have the sign of the resurrection. What each of us in this room does not deserve, but we will receive because of God's grace through Jesus Christ. But the cross does not simply encourage us to do the will of God. It is the ultimate act of obedience to the will of God by Jesus Christ himself. He did what none of us could ever do. His cross is applied to me forever. And nothing can touch that. Nothing can take it away. It's something that Gideon's fleece or even Moses' signs could never accomplish. We're going to finish the story of Gideon next week, and we're going to consider his son Abimelech. You should read ahead because he's the next judge. 
and he's the craziest yet. Would you rise with me? And we're going to worship, continue worshiping in song to our God that comes from hearts. I pray that have been given insight from his word so we know a little bit more of the glory of God who we are communicating to now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, our hearts, our minds bow before you in humble adoration, yet we are strengthened and emboldened to take this message of the cross, your gospel, to a dying world that you died for. We thank you for the strength, for the courage, for the wisdom, and all insight that you're going to grant us even this afternoon as we interact with others. And we pray it and thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.